morning we're in 1 Kings chapter 7. First Kings 7, and we'll begin by reading verses 1 through 12. God's word says, Solomon was building his own house 13 years, and he finished his entire house. He built the house of the force of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits, and its breadth 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. And it was built on four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams on the pillars. And it was covered with cedar above the chambers that were on the 45 pillars, 15 in each row. There were window frames in three rows and the window opposite window in three tiers. All the doorways and windows had square frames and the window was opposite window in three tiers. And he made the whole of pillars. Its length was 50 cubits and its breadth 30 cubits. There was a porch in front with pillars and a canopy in front of them. And he made the hall of the throne where he was to pronounce the judgment, even the hall of judgment. It was finished with cedar from floor to rafters. His own house, where he was to dwell, in the other court back of the hall was of like workmanship. Solomon also made a house like this for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken in marriage. All these were made of costly stones, cut according to measure, sawed with saws, back and front, even from the foundation to the coping, and from the outside to the great court. The foundation was of costly stones, huge stones, stones of eight and ten cubits. And above were costly stones cut according to measurement and cedar. The great court had three courses of cut stone all around, and a course of cedar beams. So had the inner court of the house of the Lord and the vestibule of the house. In the late 18th, 80s, George Vanderbilt purchased land near Asheville, North Carolina to build a country retreat. With almost limitless funds, Vanderbilt bought 125,000 acres and hired world-famous house and landscape architects to oversee the construction of a 250-room French Renaissance chateau. Work began in 1889, and for six years, they built what ended up being a house of four acres, including 35 bedrooms, 43 bathrooms, and 65 fireplaces. Along with all of this, there is a library with 10,000 volumes, a banquet hall with a 70-foot ceiling, and even an indoor pool and bowling alley, all before 1900. Such an undertaking necessitated them building their own brick-making factory and having their own railway line come to the site. Not only was the house enormous in size, but it is intricate in detail. Exquisite in decoration and priceless art fills the house. It's now called the Biltmore House, and it is still the America's largest home. Trademark name, actually. And since 1930, has been open for viewing to the public. Over a million people visit every year, and it still today takes 2,400 workers to oversee all that goes on at this one house. I think the Biltmore House shows Christian's somewhat schizophrenic nature with art and beauty. Because probably some of us are thinking, wow, I want to go see that house. And others of us are going, that person is filthy, rich. As though you can put the 
sinful term filthy on top of rich because you can get to a level where if you want too much beauty, then you're sinful. Christians have had a forlorn child relationship with art and beauty. We sit on the shore plucking off the petals saying, I love you, I love you not. I love you, I love you not. And this is not just for some Christians, but this has gone throughout time. Jean Veith writes, the iconophiles, those who have exalted art, go so far as to make works of art central to their religious and devotional lives. Other Christians, iconoclasts, have rejected art, going so far as to destroy works of art considered idolatrous. And both sides, both the iconophiles and the iconoclasts, come with Bible verses. And yet, while they see true things, they don't hold them in tension. And this morning, we're going to see in this passage the tension that we as Christians should have regarding beauty. And yet, before we dive into that, we have to really take two mental obstacles we have in regards to beauty and hopefully set them aside real quickly. The first is, when I start talking about beauty, many of our minds think, oh, well, he's talking about museums, and he's talking about that fancy stuff that I'm not really into that. You know, yeah, some people in here, they might be artists, but that's not really my thing. And yet, historically and biblically, every person is an artist. Yeah, we don't all paint and sing, but art and caring about beauty is not relegated to that. Veith again writes, Aristotle defined art as the capacity to make. For the ancients, any exercise of human creativity, building ships, making shoes, healing the sick, governing the state, is described as an art. In this sense, whenever we exercise our minds our hands, or our hands, to make something that was not there before, we are functioning as artists. Painters and sculptors are not the only artists. All honest occupations involve art. And so you may say, well, I don't care about art, but you may care a lot about making food, or preparing Excel spreadsheets, or teaching students, or making a sports play. All of those are creating something that wasn't there before, and you care about art. And that really gets to the second mental obstacle, though, because someone in the back of your mind right now is going, well, yes, but beauty is in the eye of the beholder. One man's trash is another man's treasure, so how can we even really talk about this? Well, in some ways, those are true statements, but they have gone beyond their bounds to give validity to a whole world of relativism saying nothing is intrinsically true, good, or beautiful. Some will even say justice, like beauty, is in the eye of the beholder. But no person stealing the person who just stole their wallet says, to me, you're stealing. They say, thief, objectively, that's wrong. Some things have objective truth. Justice, gravity, and I'm sure you feel your paycheck are not in the eye of the beholder. You are owed a certain objective amount. And as well, though people state this confidently, oh, well, beauty's up to each person. We don't live like this. Imagine you're watching Cinderella, and the fairy godmother comes, and she waves her wand, and then Cinderella has rotten teeth, matted hair, shrunken cheeks, bloated legs. Everyone would say she did the wrong thing. No one would go, oh, that is so wonderful. We all have an instinctive idea that some things are beautiful and some are not. Yes, as we get in different cultures, there are 
varieties of what people like. Some cultures like skinnier women. Some like larger. Some like beards. We're not talking about women now. Some don't. There are varieties of what people like, and we understand that, but there is clearly some objective standards before we get to these nuances. But the main question in all of this is we have to ask, who is the beholder? And God is the ultimate beholder. Since we are all one day going to have to give an account to him, we should ask, well, what is good, true, and beautiful to God? And while we can't give exact criteria on every little detail, even this morning we are shown that God desires these things. And this morning in our passage, we see three main truths about beauty. If you have a bulletin, the outline should be on the back, because in the first 12 verses, we see the idolatry of beauty. But then, in verses 13 through 47, we see that God skills people to make beauty, and he does this, we'll see in the last three verses, because God desires beauty. If you've been following along with us through 1 Kings, you know that last week we looked at Solomon overseeing the building of the temple. And it ended in chapter 6 saying he was seven years in building it. So then you would then expect to hear all the decorations, except the story pauses and says that though he took seven years to build the Lord's house, now chapter 7, verse 1, he took 13 years building his house. Now, this is a little bit like the White House in Washington, D.C., because the White House functions not just as living quarters, but that's where the president rules. That's where his cabinet meets. And we see here that Solomon's house was like that. There are actually five buildings here. And the first one, in verse 2, is called the House of the Force of Lebanon. It measures 150 feet long. That's as long as the corner here to the corner of our building up by the alley. It's 25, sorry, 75 feet wide, which is 25 feet wider than our building, and 45 feet tall, which is about 15 feet taller than our building. And the building had 45 cedar pillars, three rows of 15. And as you walk in, you could imagine, this looks like a force. Look at all these pillars. And then they call it the house of the force. It's like walking into a force when you come into it. And in here... Solomon will later store armory and treasures of gold. We can look to see that in other verses. The second structure is called the house of pillars. It's 75 by 45 feet. Now, as I read that, and I'm not going to read all the verses, but as we could read them, people would go, this is so tedious. But in fact, they're not so tedious that if you gave this to a builder, he'd be able to build it. He'd be left with lots of questions. Well, eh, how, how do you want me to build this? This is not enough. So there is a lot of detail, but it is not an overwhelming amount. The third building is pretty clear. It's the hall of the throne in verse 7. And then verse 8, we see that Solomon built a house inside his larger complex, they call a house, for himself and his wife, the daughter of Pharaoh. And then verses 9 and 10 go on to show how he spared no expense, costly, massive stones, 10 by 10 feet in size. Just imagine 10 feet by 10 feet, the weight of these and the skill and extreme difficulty it took to move them is hard to imagine. And yet, unlike the house of the Lord, where they didn't prepare any of these off-site because they wanted to keep it silent for holiness, here they measure and build them on site. Three layers of cut stones with cedar beams on top. 
Well, what should we make of Solomon building this large house for himself? Because we've noted several times as we've gone through 1 Kings, a story doesn't often give at the beginning or the end a statement like, this was good, this was bad. And yet, I think this story is leading us to the conclusion that Solomon was not honoring the Lord in all the things he did for his house. Now, we need to be clear. There's some things that maybe go against this because, yes, it took him 13 years, but David had prepared a lot of things for the building of the house of the Lord. So that would have allowed that to go faster. As well, he wasn't just building a house. He was also building all these other houses, other buildings for throne of judgment and such things. So maybe he was not off base. And yet, I think the author kind of emphasizes something is wrong by a couple things he does. First, as I already stated, the natural flow of the story would be to tell the interior of the house of the Lord. Why does he pause to tell us this? And second, in Hebrew, if they want to emphasize something, they often switch the word order. In English, I might say, Jeremy picked the song, subject, verb, object. Normally, in Hebrew, they have the verb, then the subject, and then the object. So it would be picked, Jeremy, the song. Now, that may seem weird to you, but they think we're a little weird, and I think I'm weird a lot of the time, too. But nonetheless, the point is that here, the author brings to the front the object, the house, that was built by Solomon. It's as though he's emphasizing something's going on. I'm giving you a little indicator that something's wrong. And then right after that, he follows it by, and it took him 13 years. And I think we're being shown, as I've said before in some aspects of Solomon, that the screw is vibrating. The author keeps mentioning aspects of Solomon's life that seem slightly amiss. Like in a movie when there's the screw rattling and the main characters don't see it, but the viewers do, you're being shown something that's going to lead to problems down the road. And when we get to chapter 11 and we go, how could Solomon do this? We're going to go, well, he didn't just wake up one day and go, you know what? Forget everything I was doing. Now I'm going to disobey the Lord. There was little things in his life that he allowed to keep happening. And even if I'm wrong on this here, we do see other places of Scripture that clearly rebuke the excessive desire for wealth and the pursuit of it. Deuteronomy 17, 17 is commands to the king, and there it says, he shall not acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And Luke 8, Jesus tells the parable of the seeds, and the seed is cast, and on one of the soils, it begins to grow, and then thorns choke it out. And what are those thorns? Well, Jesus tells us they're the anxiety of life and riches and pleasures of life. These things that aren't in and of bad in and of themselves, but when they consume us, when they become our anxiety, they choke out. They leave us unfruitful in our faith. That's why Agar prays in Proverbs 38, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Wealth and beauty strongly tempt us to live for them and not for God. And we can idolize beauty. And our driving aim needs to be our growing walk with God, not a growing portfolio or growing list of possessions that we have. But again, the point is not that Solomon's desire to have a beautiful house was bad. Rather, it's his desires were out of proportion. The energy and time spent on his house overshadowed his desire for God's house. And we know that God doesn't 
condemn the desiring and making objects of beauty because we see next in verses 13 through 47 that God skills people to make beauty. That's the second point, skilled to make beauty in verses 13 through 47. And it begins, and King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. Now, if you've been reading through this, you might be confused because in chapter 5, verse 1, Hiram of Tyre is the king. Well, wait, is the king going to come and do this? Well, no, he qualifies it. Verse 14, he was the son of the widow of the tribe of Naphtali, and he was a man of Tyre, a worker in bronze. And he was full of wisdom, understanding, and skill for making any work in bronze. So this man, Hiram, is filling in the shoes of his father. He learned his father's trade. He worked with bronze. And he was specifically skilled. If you read Exodus chapter 31, it tells of two men, specifically one Bezalel and also Aholiab. And these men are said to have the exact same thing that it says here of Hiram, that God filled them with wisdom, understanding, and skill. You know, it's interesting, Bezalel in Exodus 31 is the first person in the Bible to be declared to be full of the Spirit of the Lord. And Bezalel was not full of the Spirit of the Lord to be a prophet or a priest or a pastor. He was skilled, filled with the Spirit of the Lord to be an artist, to make beautiful things. And we see the same thing here, that this man, Hiram, has these exact same things. He has understanding. means he knows what he's working with. He understands the nuances. If you've ever been around an expert in the field, they can immediately see things that you go, what are you talking about? But their eyes are trained to catch nuances. A few weeks ago, our family had a little chocolate tasting. And as I tasted the first one, I caught the essence of chocolate. And as I tasted the second one, I caught the aroma of chocolate. And as I had the third, I could get this hint of chocolate. Other people around the room with refined palates were telling me of smoky, earthy, fruity tones. And I take another bite and I go, chocolate, still chocolate. I don't know what you're talking about. They are understanding in chocolate. I am a novice. You just eat it. I'm not chocolate. And yet they understand nuances. And Hiram is understanding in bronze. He knows what temperature it does this and what measurements and what kind of things I need to do to make it look beautiful. He is understanding from God how to do it. Not only that, he has skill. It's one thing to have understanding. It's another thing to know how to apply it. I could read online and tell you how to change an engine. I could understand it. I can't change an engine. I'm not going to try. I do not have those skills. And yet God blessed this man Hiram to make beautiful things by giving him wisdom, knowledge, and skill. And then the rest of the verses to verse 47 basically describe five sets of things that Hiram makes. First, in verses 15 through 22, there's pillars. Then in verses 23 through 26, this huge metal bowl called the sea. Then third, in verses 27 through 37, he describes stands. Fourth, 38 through 39, basins. And then in 42, 47, he kind of summarizes everything he says. He kind of repeats it, and then he looks at some minor tools. And we're not going to look at all these details, but we'll note some important points and emphasize mainly the pillars. So look down at verse 15. It says, he cast 
two pillars of bronze. 18 cubits was the height of one pillar, and a line of 12 cubits measured its circumference. So this pillar is huge. You can look at your footnotes there, and your Bible probably tells you a cubit is about 18 inches, a foot and a half. So these would have been 27 feet tall, 18 feet in circumference, meaning five and a half feet in diameter, almost like those trees in California that cars can drive through. They were almost three to four inches thick in the sides of the bronze that was there. And then on top of that, you can read in verse 16 that he made these capitals that were seven and a half feet on top of that, so almost 35 feet tall. And verses 17 through 20 describes lattice work and lilies and two rows of pomegranates with 200 of them on each pillar. In the early 1980s, archaeologists discovered what they believed to be a pomegranate used in Solomon's temple. This one was only over one and a half inches tall, and it was fastened to a staff that was presumably used by a priest. And they believed that for on this one and a half inch pomegranate was inscribed, belonging to the temple of the Lord Yahweh, holy to the priest. And then notice verse 21. Because when he finishes building these, he set up the pillars at the vestibule of the temple, it says in verse 21. He set up the pillar on the south and called its name Jacob. And he set up the pillar on the north and called its name Boaz. When we hear certain names, they carry with them more than just the name. There's connotations that go with them. If we hear Gettysburg, we immediately think of a horrendous battle in the history of our country. We hear of Hitler, and we think of a horrible regime. We may hear of Job, and automatically we picture suffering. Well, what came to the mind of the Israelite when they heard Jachin and Boaz? Well, Boaz, as you may know, was Solomon's great-great-grandfather. And Boaz means in his strength, or meaning in God's strength. Psalm 21 begins this way, O Lord, then it says, Boaz, the king rejoices. Or in other words, O Lord, in his strength, in the Lord's strength, we rejoice. And so when an Israelite walked up to the temple and they saw Boaz, their mind would be reminded, one, of the Davidic covenant, because that's their ancestor, but ultimately that God is their strength, that he's their pillar. That's what they're being reminded of. Boaz, God is our strength. Now, interestingly, The name Jachin is not used anywhere else in the Bible, but it means he establishes. Now, though the name is not used, that word is used quite frequently, actually. It's used quite frequently in two specific contexts. In 2 Samuel 8, when God is promising David a future kingdom, four times he says, God will establish. This word, Jachin, he will establish. Three times the word is used, In 1 Kings 2, when God was telling Solomon, your throne will be established. And so this word, in essence, is saying God will keep his promises of establishing the kingdom. And so what's happening is as the Israelites walk up, these pillars are reminding them of God's power, Boaz, in his strength. They're reminding him of God's promises, Jacob. He establishes. And I think we need to be reminded afresh of the power and the promises of God. 
Do you ever feel that you or maybe Christians are puny and insignificant? Our resources are not enough for the task in front of us. Temptation before you is too great. Well, there's a mantra that we get preached every week. Well, you got enough. You can do it. You're enough. Trust in yourself. And yet we're being reminded again, don't look in. Look up like the Israelites. As they come and they see these 35-foot pillars that remind them it is in God's strength. It's in his promises that you can overcome. You know, I regularly find Christians, find myself, looking with pessimistic eyes to the future. What will happen to our culture, to our children? The world has the media. They have Hollywood. They have education. They have government. What, what are we? We don't have anything. What do we have? We have the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. We know that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You don't, don't look at everything they have. Nothing they have can bring death into life. We have the resurrection power of God that can bring death from life. Hollywood, the media, the universities, they have nothing in comparison to that. And so as the Israelites came to worship and they felt puny looking up, we should feel puny. We should look and go, we don't have the resources, but we should be reminded of God's promises. Jacob, he will establish his kingdom. Of God's power, Boaz, it's in his strength that we will overcome. The point is not that we shouldn't be concerned. We should be concerned, but then we cast our anxieties on him. And so may we go forth with confidence, with the power of the gospel, the promises of God, knowing that he will and can protect us. But moving on, we see that Hiram builds three other main things in verse 23 through 26, he describes the sea. The sea is this massive bowl that's 15 feet in diameter, seven and a half feet deep, and 45 feet in circumference. Look down at verse 23. It says, it was round, 10 cubits from brim to brim, and five cubits high, and a line of 30 cubits measured its circumference. And some of you are going, uh-oh. I've been in geometry circumference equals pi 3.14 times diameter diameter 10 times 3.14 is 31.4 they say the circumference is 30 error right here the bible's wrong no not wrong it's called estimation if you estimate if you round 31.4 you get 30 the Bible is true in everything it affirms and teaches. The Bible is not here saying, we're presenting to you the mathematical formula for how you can find circumference based on the diameter of a shape. It's saying, hey, we're going through these measurements, we're giving them to you. If we take a quick estimate, it's 10 cubits across, it's 30 cubits around, and that is true. We got to be careful and not press on the Bible precision that we wouldn't expect of any other person making estimates in life. And yet here to move on, this sea was decorated with two rows of gourds under the brim. It set on four teams of three oxen facing north, south, east, 
and west, and maybe it's just my immature mind, but I thought it was really funny that the author included, and they were, the oxen were facing with their rear parts inward. Good to know. Verse 26 is going on and telling us more about these. And this thing was so big, it held 12,000 gallons of fluid. This thing is massive. And if you read Second Chronicles 4, it tells you that this was used for the priests as they would do their ritual washing. Going on, there's an extended section, verses 27 through 37, of these massive stands, six feet by six feet in square, then four and a half feet tall. They were decorated with lion, oxen, cherubim, and wreaths of bezeled, beveled work. They had bronze axles and wheels. And then on those parts, they also had carved cherubims, lions, and palm trees with wreaths all around them. And these basins were huge because they had to hold these basins. These stands were huge because they had to hold basins that he describes in verses 38 and 39. Because Hiram made 10 bronze basins that held 240 gallons of fluid. Now, water weighs slightly more than 8 pounds. So if you did 240 gallons times 8, these stands and then these basins are weighing close to a ton, close to 2,000 pounds. And there's 10 of them, five on one side, five on the other, that were used by the priest for washing the burnt offerings. And then verses 40 through 47 kind of summarize all this, all the things he's made and all the tools that Hiram made. And the amazing thing is it tells us in verse 47 that Solomon left all the vessels unweighed because there were so many of them. The, bra- the weight of the bronze was not ascertained. And yet, why was Hiram able to do all this? Because God skilled him to do this. And God still gives us various talents and skills that we might honor him in any sphere of life in which we work. Let's notice some of fascinating features of some of the things Hiram made. I know we didn't read each verse, but as you read through it, you would notice that the gigantic pillars, they had no engineering or architectural importance. They're not supporting anything. As we mentioned, many of the things that were put on the various stands, on the various objects, only one of them had any clear religious symbolism, the cherubim. But besides that, we talked of Lions, pomegranates, lilies, gourds, palm trees, various parts of God's creation that, yes, we could draw a connection from them to some aspect of God, but they seem to be there for beauty, to make the temple beautiful. We might be tempted to say, well, they function merely to increase the beauty, but that would imply that beauty is some incidental, not really essential part. And yet God says beauty is essential to what he wants made we're being shown that god desires beauty it's not just an extra plus and thus god skills people to make beautiful things and we can enjoy them simply because they're beautiful you know, christians throughout time have often had this nagging guilt complex that any art and now i do mean kind of dance music painting whatever must have some evangelistic or clearly Christian purpose to honor God. You must put a cross somewhere in it, or you must add a Bible verse. 
And yet God has us make beautiful things even if they are not explicitly religious. Flowers, food, friends, lovers, mountains, cultures, language, they can all be enjoyed because God gave them to us. Thus you can paint, dance, write, sculpt, sing, draw, and honor God just because you enjoy it. To do art that honors God, you don't necessarily need to use a religious symbol, a Bible verse, put a reference of scripture on it, or have an evangelistic goal. You should do it to glorify God, but glorifying God can happen by enjoying him as the giver of these things. Now to be clear, we should be creative in thinking of ways to reach unbelievers. We should see all of life as under the lordship of Christ, and we should have a burning passion to make disciples. I'm not denying any of that. The point is that evangelism is one of the many good ways we express that we express that we are disciples who want to glorify God. We don't have to force every aspect of life to have some evangelistic purpose. Or to move away from the narrow de- definition of art to a broader definition, it's not spin- sinful necessarily to spend time honing your craft of painting model airplanes or making bread or kicking a ball or making a quilt. Like Solomon did earlier, yes, you can make these out of proportion and you can idolize them. That is true. That's the tension that Christians have dealt with throughout time. Yet these things are not bad because God desires beauty. And that's the last thing we see in verses 48 through 51, that God desires beauty. The chapter ends, beginning in verse 48, with a summary of all the vessels that Solomon made for the house of the Lord. We read verses 48 to the end. It says, so Solomon made all the vessels that were in the house of the Lord, the golden altar, the golden table for the bread of the presence, the lampstands of pure gold, five on the south side and five on the north before the intersectionary, the flowers, the lamps, and the tongs of gold, the cups, snuffers, basins, dishes for incense, and fire pans of pure gold and the sockets of gold for the doors of the innermost part of the house, the most holy place, and for the doors of the nave of the temple. Thus all the work that King Solomon did on the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things that David his father dedicated, the silver, the gold, and the vessels, and stored them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. Now many of these items are identical to what was made for the tabernacle, but now several hundred years later, Solomon is making new ones. We're having a new building, new objects. And the first is the golden altar of incense, which the priests would use morning and night, we're told in Exodus 30, to make an offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Yet the Bible uses this language of incense and connects it to our prayers. That's why David prays in Psalm 141.2, let my prayer be counted as incense before you or in revelation 8 3 and 4 it says another angel was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne the smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the saints went up before god from the angel's hands in other words the incense we offer to to god today is calling out to him expressing our dependence upon him your prayer doesn't need to be a burden or drudgery. It can be a sweet treasure that we know by this, I am bringing a pleasing aroma to God. 
A second major thing that is described in these verses is the golden table. Every Sabbath, the priest would bring new bread in, and then they would eat the old. And for them, the idea was of table fellowship, a rich idea where in their culture you would never eat a meal with someone unless you had peace, friendship, and fellowship with them. The next big thing is the golden lampstands. Now, interestingly, the tabernacle had one. Now they have ten, probably moving from skins in a smaller room now to stones in a larger room. They need more lights. And every day the priests were to make sure these lights, these lamps, stayed lidded and so that they would know that God and the light of his presence abide forever. And then it wraps up telling all the various things that Solomon made of gold and that he brought in that David, his father, had made. And next week, 1 Kings 8, we'll see that God welcomes this temple and he's pleased with it. And yet that's interesting because there are times in the Bible when he says, I am not pleased with what you're doing. And so here it is showing that God is pleased, God desires beauty. And as we wrap up, let's just consider three things about this. Why does God desire beauty? How does God desire us to show beauty? And what might be problems if we fail to realize this? But first, why does God desire beauty? Well, God desires beauty because God made beauty to reflect him. You know, often as we think of Christianity, if we think of God, we think God is true, which is true. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and we should emphasize that. And yet we should also say that we love God because he is beautiful. Earlier we had read Psalm 27, and verse 4 says, One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. That's what the psalmist wants, to be able to gaze on God's beauty. Jonathan Edwards wrote, God is infinitely the most beautiful and excellent, the foundation of all beauty. All the beauty to be found throughout the whole creation is only the diffused being of that being who is infinite and full of brightness, glory, and beauty. All beauty that you see in this universe has its source in God. And God made all these beautiful things so that we might catch a glimpse, a shadow, a reflection of him. Well, second, how, or we could ask, when and where does God desire beauty? Well, one of the great hallmarks, one of the great achievements of the Protestant Reformation was the transformation of art. If you go into an art museum and you look at the art from early days of Christianity into the Protestant Reformation, you see a lot of pictures of Jesus on the cross or Mary with child or other clearly religious symbols. And yet then in the Reformation, you begin to see very ordinary thing like Vermeer's The Milkmaid. And what is The Milkmaid about? The Milkmaid. Because what they were showing is that this is not a boring, non-essential part of life. The reformers reminded us that every part of life, even if you're a milkmaid, has glory and honor if done for God. Thus, everyone, everywhere is called to create beauty everywhere they go. Your room, your clothing, your homework, the way you set the table should all be done in a decent, orderly, and beautiful fashion out of joy to God. You know, Christians 
should be known for excellence, for creativity, for beauty, whether they're folding chairs or framing houses, whether they're organizing the dishes or organizing a worship service. And in this, we have to remember there's a connectedness between truth, goodness, and beauty. Albert Moeller writes, the Christian worldview insists that the face of a child with Down syndrome is infinitely more beautiful than an airbrushed model on the cover of a fashion magazine. The model may be pretty, but every human being is beautiful simply by virtue of being made in the image of God. And the airbrush model is less beautiful because she's not actually fully true. She was airbrushed. She was changed so as to supposedly make her more beautiful. And so God's concern for beauty goes with truth and goodness, and all three must join together to create something for God that he delights in and is worthy of praise. But third, as we wrap up, what might happen if we don't hold these in tension, if we don't understand this? Well, we'll run back to the whole iconoclast or iconophiles. Iconoclast, we need to get rid of this. This is worshiping art. This is idolatry or iconophiles. Oh, art is the most important thing. To use other terms, we'll fall either into asceticism, which sees things, especially beautiful ones, as evil in and of themselves, or materialism. Randy Alcorn shows how asceticism can be especially destructive by recounting Mother Teresa's response to once being donated a facility. Once she got the facility, she removed all the carpet and took out the hot water heater. Now, it wasn't that she then went and sold the carpet or sold the hot water heater. It was as though those things in and of themselves were too much. And yet, wouldn't the hot water have been refreshing for those she was caring for? Wouldn't a carpeted floor be more comfortable for those who are suffering it's as though sacrificing is what pleases the lord well yes in some ways but we can enjoy the good gifts he's given us and we can be harmful to one another by denying that now as we know most of our culture is not struggling with asceticism we're struggling with materialism that if i get things then i have life more bigger faster better and yet both asceticism and materialism misunderstand beauty. Materialism acts as though beauty is the end. If I just get this and that, life is perfect. Asceticism says the problem is beauty, and yet beauty is not the problem because God gave us beauty. God gave us beauty to enjoy him, to know him. Beauty rightly understood and enjoyed reflects God. It brings delight to his children and ultimately glorifies God. And so falling into these dangers happens in many ways, but it also happens in how we view God. We need to, as Christians, convey not only what we believe is true, but also that it is beautiful. If we don't do this, if we go through life only conveying to our children, only conveying to the world, well, this is true, and what we go through as a drudgery, well, then all we're going to raise is Pharisees. Yep, it's true, but what they really delight in, what they really find joy in is that beautiful stuff the world has to offer. And yet, we need to show that God is good, true, and beautiful. So we were made 
for beauty because we were made for God. However, like confused travelers who are going to the Alps, we often stop and wonder at the sign getting us to the Alps. And we need to realize, don't be fixated by the sign getting you to the Alps. Go all the way and gaze at the glory and beauty of the Alps. And then realize those are pointing you to God. That is the beauty that you were made for. And so, would you taste and see that God is good? Would you know that he is the way, the truth, and the life? And would it be your heart's cry that you could gaze on the beauty of the Lord? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, may we do all those. May we taste and see your goodness. May we know you for being true. May we gaze on your beauty. Lord, help us. We are so prone to idolatry, to focus on the symbol and not what it points us to. And may we see your gifts and see your good hand in them. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.